So we're in Nahum, still in chapter 1. I think this is the last class we'll have in chapter 1. We only have one verse to cover, so I think we're going to get through it in one class. Um, we've seen uh, so far in this chapter, uh, number one in our outline, is that God is in control. We've seen His sovereignty uh, how he has displayed it in creation, how he is uh, showing it in the lives of both Israel and in Nineveh, Assyria. Uh, we saw last week, uh, well, for, three, for the last two weeks, we've been in the last point in this first section, letter E, God brings destruction to Nineveh and celebration to his people. This is from verses 9 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 15. Um, we... Last week, spent time seeing that uh, God often uses the difficult times in our life, and He will always use them, to bring about maturing of His people. And, that he, and, he, and He does this by showing His faithfulness. So we spent some time looking at that and seeing that it applies to us in the New Covenant as well, in the life of Christ, God's faithfulness as seen in Christ. So let's look at verse 15, and uh, then we'll pray. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Let's pray. Max, would you lead us? Father, we praise your name, for you are worthy to be praised. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for bringing us here. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the word that is going to be preached, and that we're going to learn about Nineveh uh, and through Nahum. Father, we just thank you for Kelly, for his willingness to bring us the, your word, and we pray that you would bless him. All these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I have become, in the last few years, increasingly frustrated in my conversations with a number of believers. We talked about this some in the introduction to the book. You know, there's a lot of things that we're encountering in our society in the last few years. And recently had the same conversation with a believer just, uh, just a week ago. And it, it, it kind of goes like this. You know, we look at all that's going on in society, and, you know, I would say it's dark. I would say it's even evil. You know, we see what has gone on with the draconian actions of our government as well as governments around the world and its treatment, how it dealt with COVID. You know, closing, forcing churches to shut down is evil. It's contrary to Scripture. You know, it's forcing us to go against Scripture. I, I call that evil. Um... We've seen the, 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 you know, the, the whole BLM movement. I know you're not supposed to talk about political stuff, but, you know, hey, come on. You know, it's, you know, it, it, it's straightforward, that it, and it's showing itself, too, to just, it's, it's dark, it's evil. I see the, uh, the, the whole twistedness of the, the gender issue. Can you even believe it's an issue? You know, it being beyond ridiculous, but has moved into the realm of insanity. And, you know, really frustrated with, with Christians and, and our, you know, just 
our defeat in all of this. The conversation that I had last week, it, it went like this, you know, where the, the believer I was talking to just said, there's no returning from this. We have gone down this road and there's, it's, 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 it's over with. And I just looked at him and said, I'm not there yet. I am not denying that this is evil. I am not denying that we could see our country fall this year. I'm not denying that our financial situation is a wreck. But you know what? For those who belong to Christ, there is every reason for celebration. And we're not celebrating. You know, it could be, you know, I've heard people say, oh, Jesus is coming back. And they're saying it more like this, oh, Jesus is coming back. Everything's falling apart. Well, if that's where we're going, well, there's every reason to celebrate. And you know what? It could be that our country completely falls apart and we become the next great big third world society. But I've been to third worlds and I've seen Christians there. We need to be living a life of celebration. And thinking about this, I was, in verse 15, we see that this is God's good news that's being proclaimed. And look at who he's proclaiming it to. He's proclaiming to those who have legitimately gone through some very, very difficult and hard things. Atrocious things, truly dark and truly evil. Some of it of their own doing. But we hear that there's to be a celebration for them. I came across an article, and I'm always looking for illustrations, for you know, quotes, things like this. And, and I came across something that actually comes from our, our own backyard, from Kerrville, Texas. Found it in an old article uh, several years back from the, the Kerrville newspaper, the Daily Times. An interesting article that dealt with two gentlemen. Both of them retired Air Force pilots. Both of them former POWs of the Korean War. And uh, it, I'll read some of it and then paraphrase some of it for you. It goes like this. At 93 years old, Kerrville native, Allie Burton, that's the man on the left, hasn't lost his memories of the 10 months he spent in a prison camp in North Korea. It's been a little more than six decades since Burton's release on August 30th, 1953. Before that, the U.S. Air Force pilot spent the winter and spring months in captivity with North Korean and Chinese forces after his plane went down on November 6, 1952. He wasn't the only one. On Thursday morning, under the pretense of an interview for the 64th anniversary of his release from, uh, and, and uh, I don't know why this word screws me up, but it's, it's, a, it's a simple word, repatriation. Did I say that right? Yes. Hot dog, okay. <laughs> Burton and his family gathered for a surprise visit from fellow Korean War POW Jim Alder, that's the gentleman on the right, who flew in from Phoenix. Uh, the two shook hands in a reception room at the end of the Hills Hotel and Conference Center. Alder uh, was, a was, a bomber aircraft, was on a bomber aircraft with three other U.S. Air Force crew members. 
And this is his statement. By the grace of God, we went down right through the treetops. We hit the river, he said. I don't know how I got out of the plane. I don't care. Not a single one of us was hit. Burton's aircraft also was struck down. It was a single pilot F-84 fighter bomber. He said that our mission was to bomb an anti-aircraft uh, to bomb anti-aircraft vehicles. Instead of bombing them, they anti-aircraft me, he joked. When his plane was hit, Burton found himself in an immediate vertical dive. He went, in, he went to eject, and severe vibration set in. Then the roar stopped, and the whole tail section had broken off. All of a sudden, the canopy was gone, and my seat ejected, he said. When he made it to the ground, he said he could hear the fire of the wreckage crackling nearby. There were a bunch of soldiers around, he said, and they were running up to me. Instinctively, I reached to get my pistol out, but I realized that it wouldn't do any good. There were too many. I reached for the radio to tell them that I had been captured, but before I could get the antenna up, a soldier snatched the radio out of my hand. He said the North Korean soldiers um, swarmed all over him. They herded him to the top of a, of a hill, which, were, uh, which, found, which he found six armed soldiers waiting for him, and they told me to run down the hill. I knew they were going to shoot me in the back. So I never stopped talking. I think it fascinated them. At least I got off the hilltop without getting shot. They blindfolded him and they took him to a location where they interrogated him for quite a while. After about a month of isolation, the Korean soldiers made one last attempt to gather information from Burton. They took him down into, the dark, into a dark place. I thought, well, this is it. This is the tail end. But I could do nothing about it. One of the interrogators told Burton it was the, his last chance to tell them something useful. I said, I don't have anything to tell you. And he knocked me off the stump and onto the ground, and I thought this was, going, this was the end. But it wasn't the end for Burton. Two days later, he was moved to a prison camp, but still kept in isolation. They put me in a room with concrete walls. It was severely cold in there, he said, and I couldn't sleep. I thought, when, when are they going to... When are they going to take me out and kill me? But they never did. After time in solitary, in exclusion, me and my, my tongue today. After a time, Burton was moved into a company of 60 other U.S. prisoners of war. It was, fair, it was fiercely cold, they said, day and night. We had a little, bitty, a little bitty stove that we tried to keep going all hours of the day. The prisoners tended the fire overnight in shifts, and every two weeks he had, a fire, he had fire watch. And while on watch, he heated up pans of water and dipped a rag in the hot water. That was our bath facilities. We used to ask one of the guards, how cold did it get last night? And one time he said, we don't know. The thermometer froze at negative 45. We stayed hungry all the time. But we survived, Burton said. The prisoners were taken on occasion to trips to the frozen river nearby to collect buckets of water and up the mountain to harvest timber. To me, Burton said, it was a chance to get out of enclosure. Then as rumors of peace began to spread, each day I asked the boy 
this is Alder now, each day I asked the boy guarding us peas in Korean. One day I asked as I went by and he said, peace. In, an ex in excitement, he asked again and received the same confirmation. I came charging into the barracks shouting, peace, peace. I was that guy, he reminded Burton during the Kerrville reunion. It was several weeks before the prisoners got home. In that time, they were nursed back to good health aboard the USS General Black, Burton said. And when I got home, this is Burton now, the guy on the left. When I got home, my mother and family and a group of friends met me at the airport in San Antonio. I was surprised, he said, adding that the parade in Kerrville held to honor his homecoming was more than I wanted to experience. It was real nice. The whole town turned out, and it was during the same parade that he met his future wife, Betty, for the first time. And she said, I remember exactly where I sat, by the creamery at five points. That's there no more. Articles that documented the repatriation of the, of the, uh, and the parade were printed in the San Antonio Express News that fall which Burton's family still keeps copies of. We were listening, now this is his family, we were listening every night and day to see if he was released. We didn't know if he was dead or alive, said his brother Lewis. We knew he got shot down. On the 26th day of prisoner release, we got the call. Burton's mother got a call from a reporter of the San Angelo Times who had heard his name on the nighttime POW release announcements over the radio, and they celebrated. You know, these two gentlemen certainly suffered, but we find that the families at home did too. But when the good news came, there was a celebration that involved the whole town of Kerrville, and these gentlemen lived that celebration. Their lives were changed. They lived with celebration. There was suffering, but celebration had come. When the news of peace is delivered, there should be celebration. <coughs> That's also to be our response. God's people should respond with the news of peace, with celebration. Is that the case for us? Verse 15 reads like this, Behold, on the mountain the feet of him who brings good news. Now, it's been pointed out that in the Hebrew text, verse 15 actually is the beginning of verse 2. But it, it, doesn't, it, it fits into the context. It's not wrong to have it with chapter 1 because of the context. These people have been under severe anxiety. They have suffered greatly. But there's a messenger coming over the hilltop. And his feet are beautiful. Because of the message of peace. And there will be celebration. We see this phrase is used in Isaiah uh, 52 verse 7 here in, with, uh, with the context of Babylon and how Babylon will be destroyed. And then again, we find that Paul uses this phrase uh, 
in Romans 10, verse 15, with the proclamation of the gospel to lost sinners. And so there is application certainly for us. Wearsby says it like this, To Judah it meant that Assyria was completely destroyed and could never again invade her land. To us who trust Christ it means that, we, that he has completely defeated sin, death, and Satan and that we are now free to enjoy the blessings of salvation. In both cases we see that this is what God is doing. This is his activity with those who have been rebellious toward him. And it truly is, isn't it? It truly is good news. Remember the context of great oppression, and here good news is proclaimed. Remember that these people who have been suffering are being told by the messenger, good news. God's good news. What does that phrase, good news, mean? Well, it's actually one word, and it means to be fresh, to full, to be cheerful. It also brings with it the understanding, with, with the bearing tidings, it brings with it the understanding of, of smoothing of the face. You know, if you can imagine what they've been going through, you know, it, it, as they suffer, with the oppression that's on them, can you imagine how it was affecting them physically? And now comes the message, and it's, it's a soothing message. You can almost see the picture that's being drawn. It's just, remember when you were sick as a little boy and your mother would just, just soothe you? And this is what's going on here. This is an incredible message that's bringing change. It's good news because it's good news that brings peace. This word peace, you know, Doug Hershey points out that the common Western definition of peace is the absence of conflict and war. But you find as you do a simple word study in the Hebrew that it means much more. Among all the explanations and definitions that it says such a deep definition for this. Among so many, we find this, that it means peace and prosperity, according to 1 Samuel. It means completeness in Jeremiah 13, a safeness and salvation in Genesis 28. It means good health in Psalm 38. It means, in Exodus 18, satisfaction and contentment. And it's used as the word friend, in Jeremiah. And there that brings with it the understanding of affection. Can you imagine? This is what's being proclaimed in the midst of all this hurt that they're experiencing. And in Jeremiah 16, it means blessing. We recognize the word. We've heard it before. It's shalom. And this word in, in the Hebrew is just so rich. In Exodus chapters 21 and 22, there Moses uses it in talking to the nation of Israel. And there he's dealing with those that have been, he's addressing the subject of being treated wrong. Those who have lost, who have had property taken from them or that they have lost. And these people are considered to be lacking or complete and so what Moses is saying must happen is that the one who has done wrong must make things right. And that's the word. He must, shalom must be found. Peace must be found. The one who has done wrong must 
restore, must make right. He says in, the, in those chapters, he says this, he says they must make it good, they must repay, they must make restitution, they must make something that has been taken away, they must make it again, this is incredible, they must, they must make it whole. They must make, wellness must be the reality in what they do. And that's the idea that Joseph uses in Genesis 43 when he's talking with his brothers. And at this time, they still don't know who he is. And Joseph comes up to them and he says to them, then he asked them, in in Genesis 43, 27, he asked them about their, and there's the same word, their welfare. He said, is your old father, same word, well, of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. They bowed down in homage. Major Thomas used to constantly try to drum into me proper English. I remember visiting with him one time, and he asked me, how are you, Kelly? And I said, I'm good. He says, no, you're not. You're not food. If things, if, if, if things are good, then what you mean is that you're well. And I said, yes, sir, I'm well. <laughs> and every time he would ask me that, from then on, I would say, I'm well. And he would say, good. And that still is my response. People will ask me, how are you? And he did such a good job of drumming that into me, I can't help but say I'm well. But this is to be our reality. Shalom, peace, I'm well. That's not for just anybody, but it's for those who are his. Those who have experienced God's activity in their life, God's initiative toward them, our natural response should be because the truth is We are well. But Kelly, have you seen what's going on with our government? I can't get away from it. And it's dark, it's black, it's evil, but folks, I am well. It's not a consolation prize. And I think that's what we as believers consider to be. Well, at least Jesus will come back someday. At least I'm saved. At least someday I'll be in heaven. Do you know that Jesus himself said that eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus? It's not heaven someday, though it will involve heaven someday, but eternal life begins the moment that we place our faith in Christ. Eternal life begins the moment that we are indwelt by God himself. And we are well. And as we do a study of this, we start to work through Scripture. What do we come to? What do we come to with this peace? We start to move into the... We don't even have to go to the New Testament to find it, but as you start to study peace, what all of a sudden is revealed to us? Any ideas? For a Christian, what do you come to realize about peace? we start to realize that this peace of God is not something, but what? But someone. It's Jesus himself. 
Jesus is God's peace. He doesn't just bring peace, but he literally is peace. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and the Prince of Peace. The same word. Isn't that amazing when you think of the nation of Israel to this day, how their greeting involves shalom. Isn't it amazing what they're saying? And someday we'll realize. In Judges chapter 6, verse 23, the Lord said to him, Peace, shalom to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. And you know, when you go back and you look at that chapter and you work through the context of it, in verses 14, 16, and 22, what you come to realize is that the angel of the Lord that is talking to Gideon is the Lord, is Christ. The Lord is peace. And if that weren't enough for us, then we go to the New Testament. And we know from John chapter 20, verse 19, the apostles were in that upper room because they were afraid. Of all that has just happened, it was truly dark, it was truly evil that the man who knew no sin would be hung on a cross and suffocated in our place. And out of fear that they were next, and we find as you go into the book of Acts that they were next. Out of fear of this, they are hiding in the upper room and Christ appears. And we read, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and he said to them, now, th now think about this, after we've looked at the word peace throughout Scripture and to see that this is to be our celebration. This is the message that is given. Jesus says to them in the midst of this great fear, his first word to them, is peace. This is the reality of a crucified and resurrected victorious Lord. Shalom. Wellness be to you. And that word there, it's, it's so interesting, that word peace there in the Greek, you know, it brings with it the same understanding. It brings this, it says, it's this. It's to set at one again to restore. It means a quietness. It's a restoration. Now what should be the outcome? <laughs> what should be the outcome of God's peace that is fulfilled in Christ? As that messenger comes over the mountain and proclaims peace. The good news. Well, he goes on and he says this, celebrate. Celebrate. In particular, I believe, and I'll show you here in a second, I believe this to be the celebration of Messiah. The celebration of Christ. This is literally what, what the message is. It's what he's telling them, and we'll see how it works out like that. Because... He goes on and he says this. He says, to celebrate in our text there, 
Celebrate what? How does it read? What is that? Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. I wonder, see that word celebrate there? It actually means make pilgrimage, keep a pilgrimage feast. Isn't that interesting? Celebrate. Feast. I wonder if this isn't giving a nod to the pilgrimage that the nation of Israel would make three times a year. As they would go up, they would ascend. Psalms, uh, Psalms 102 to 134 are, are songs that they would sing as they ascended up to Jerusalem for these feasts. In particular, those three pilgrimages would have been for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, our Passover, would be for the Feast of Harvest, or what we call Pentecost, and for the Feast of Ingathering, or the Feast of Booths, our Tabernacles. It's been suggested that these feasts, as well as the other five, or four, three, I mean, that's, that's three there, so that would have been four more, that all of them would have been very difficult to celebrate during this time in dealing with the Assyrians because it would have been very dangerous for them to celebrate, for them to get out into public, for them to actually make a pilgrimage. But now because of the activity of God, there is a messenger who brings good news, announcing peace. If it is not referring to just these three feasts of ascent, then I think it certainly would be referring to all seven of the feasts, which bring us to the same conclusion that they are to be celebrating Messiah, celebrating Christ. What do I mean by this? Okay, well, real quick, I want us to, to look at these feasts. Now, remember, the feasts, and literally, the word feast means appointed times. It's not just haphazard. God's very specific about when these feasts are to be celebrated. And in this, he, it's a carefully planned out, orchestrated year of celebration. Four of these feasts would be celebrated in the fall. The last three would be celebrated, I'm sorry, would be ce- the first, the four would be celebrated in the spring. And then the last three would be celebrated in the fall. And it's carefully orchestrated as you look at these feasts, beginning with the first one, the Passover, and you work your way through to the Feast of the Trumpets, and you find that God is telling a story, the story of redemption and the final victory that comes from it. It's almost like God is in control. The first one, we know is the Passover. We find all of them in Leviticus chapter 23, and there it just kind of gives us the order of when they're to be celebrated. In Leviticus 23, verse 5, we find that the Passover, and it's to be celebrated, it's the first one of the year that would be celebrated, and it foreshadows Christ as our Passover. It's there, you know, it was celebrated for the first time in Egypt, where they're to each take a lamb, each household takes a lamb, unblemished lamb, Incredible picture of Christ. And then they are to kill it and eat it. So they're to take it in. They take the blood and they spread it around the door of their dwelling. 
That night, the firstborn of every family will die. The firstborn of the family and the firstborn of the livestock will die unless there is blood applied to the door. Then death will pass over that household. We find that this is an incredible picture of Christ as our Passover. And you know, when Jesus was crucified, it was at this time that he was murdered. And imagine that as the families throughout the nation and in the city of Jerusalem were celebrating the Passover with their lambs, the Lamb of God was sacrificed just outside the city. And then, 1 Peter tells us that Christ is the Lamb without blemish or defect. And it's been pointed out that as the first Passover marked the Hebrews' release from Egyptian slavery, so the death of Christ marks our release from the slavery of sin, according to Romans 8.2. And it's almost like God is in control. Then the next, pass, uh, next feast would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Leviticus 23, verse 6. This one points to the Messiah as, toward his sinless life. Leaven, we know, is a picture of sin. And so during this feast, they not only were to remove leaven from their bread, but also from their house. It wasn't supposed to be found anywhere. It was completely removed from their life, an incredible picture of Christ, according to Hebrews 4, verse 15, who though, in test, who though was tempted in all things, yet without sin. Then the Feast of Fruits, Leviticus 23, verse 10, it pointed to the Messiah's resurrection at the first fruits Jesus was resurrected on this very day. It's almost like God's in control. Which is one of the reasons Paul describes him in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 as the first fruits from the dead. Then we go on to the last one in the springtime, which would be the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. It was held 50 days after the start of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it points to the, the harvest. The incredible picture is they were bringing in the harvest. It points to a harvest of souls that we find in the New Testament. The gift of the Holy Spirit for both Jews and Gentiles. We see it come to fruition in Acts chapter 2. And you know it's just it's incredible as you look at the as you look at the the, uh, the references in Joel chapter two verses twenty eight to thirty two, and then you go to Acts chapter two, and you find it repeated, and it's the description of the very life of God once again, entering into and dwelling His people. I love the part in that in chapter 2 where Peter gets up to preach and he brings it to a conclusion. And he says, you know, you've accused us of being drunk. But this isn't us. This is God himself. This is Jesus. Whom you crucified and God resurrected.
points to the indwelling life of Christ. Messiah filling the church by the Holy Spirit. And then they'd go through the summer and comes the fall and they would celebrate the Feast of Trumpets. I called that the last one earlier. I was wrong. Leviticus 23 verse 24. The first of the fall feasts. And there are many, now we've seen in the first feast, the ones that are celebrated in the spring, they've already, the pictures that are given in those of Christ's death and his resurrection have already occurred. And so now, as we look to these that are to come, we have the confidence that they will happen. And the first one is the trumpets. Many believe that this points to the rapture of the church when Christ, Messiah, will appear in the heavens for his bride. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 5. And then comes the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 23, verse 27. Here, many believe this is, this, this is pointing to the second coming of Christ when he returns to earth with, with his, with us. And it's here we find the Day of Atonement described in Scripture where the Jewish nation will look upon him that they have killed, that they have pierced. They will repent and they will receive Christ. Micah 4 verses 1 to 7. I'm sorry. That's the next one. But that's in Zechariah and then in Romans 11. And we don't have time to read it, but man, reading through Romans 11, 1 to 6 and 25 to 36, what a, it's just such a beautiful thing to, to, to have, to just see. I wish we had time to read through it. To see how God deals with those that are His. His mercy and His grace to those who are so undeserving. And this is our God. Every reason to celebrate. To not be fixated on our failure and our darkness, but to be fixated on Christ. His mercy and His grace. And then finally, the seventh feast, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And again, here we find it in Leviticus 23, verse 34, and we believe it points to the Lord's promise that He will once again, what an incredible thing, He will once again tabernacle, dwell, with his people. When he returns to reign over the world, Micah 4, verses 1 to 7. Isn't that incredible to think? That this is already a settled fact that we are going to see. His very presence with us. So are, we, are we celebrating? And then in our text there in Nahum, he goes on, he says, now do this. He says, here comes the good news. Peace. Now celebrate. Celebrate. And then he says this, pay your vows. Celebrate and live true before God. We find this repeated throughout Scripture in Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall... Not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Ecclesiastes 5.4, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. 
It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And then in Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall, not, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, we've got to understand something. These vows are... The vow that is to be made is a vow of responding to God's initiative in their life. Just as God's work to the nation of Israel's life should affect their behavior, so should His activity, His initiative toward you and me affect our behavior. We too should live before Him that in a way that is true of Him. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 as we see this explained to the church? I'll start reading as you're turning to it. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4, But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. And raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. And the key phrase for the book of Ephesians, in Christ Jesus. So that... In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So this salvation, this good news that we have to us, has got nothing to do with our good works. But that does not mean that good works should not be seen. Because verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What does that mean? Well, go to James in chapter 2. In chapter 2, James, you know, the, the, Martin Luther was so afraid of the book of James for the, for the parishioners that when he interpreted Scripture into German, he put the book of James at the end of the Bible. If there would have been maps back then, he would have put it at the end of maps. And I don't believe it's because he misunderstood it, but I think he was afraid that the others would misunderstand it because it's a book of works. And teaching at his hill, you know, was, when I was there full time, you know, I'd be teaching all year and tell them this life in Christ is not about you. Your salvation is not about you. It's about Christ living his life in and through you. Now you need to trust him as you have received, so walk in him. And the students would just, you know, get so excited about this. And then at the, in the last week of school, I would teach the book of James. Now be doers of the word. And they would literally come up to me and they say, what the heck? What is this? You've told us all year that it's not about what we do. I said, it's not, but you better do. 
You say, what? In chapter 2 of James, in verse 18, it says this, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Now, as we read through this passage, remember now, the works are supposed to be there, but the works are the result. The works are the response. The works are not the cause. This paying your vows is the response of what God is doing in their life. It's not what brings it about. Verse 19, for you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. See, it's not the works that bring about faith, but faith brings about the works. Because they are done, what Paul says is what in Colossians? He says, I strive, I labor according to his power, which mightily works within me. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Pay your vows. What does this mean? What is the message of the messenger with the beautiful feet coming over and announcing peace? What is the message? Celebrate. The feast. Celebrate Jesus. And pay your vows. Live his life. It's almost like one person wrote the Bible. And he only had one thing to talk about, and that being the person of Christ. It's really all about him. It's not about you. He simply allows you to live in who it's all about. Celebrate your festivals. Fulfill your vows. Celebrate Jesus and live from Him. And it, our verse, our passage ends with this phrase. The wicked one will never again pass through you. He is cut off completely. Isaiah 52 tells us this, Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in the beauty, beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean, look at this, will no longer come into you. This is God's victory. This is his victory for the church. 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all died, also in Christ all are made alive. And verse 26 says this, The last enemy that will be abolished is death. It's done. 
And so there's every reason to celebrate. Watch Mani, an interesting man to, to read about. You know, he, as a young man, came to realize, you know, he came to Christ, and he came to realize that this life he had come to is only it's, it's only a reality by faith in him. It's not by what he does, but it's by trusting him and moving forward in what he puts out. And the man lived a life of celebration even though he was imprisoned as a fairly young man for decades and actually died in prison under communism. But those who had been in prison with him would come out and they would give reports of him that the man literally had a smile on his face every day. This man had learned to look up in the midst of all that he was going through and see the messenger of God. The beauty of his feet, the one who brought the message, the good news of peace. And he lived every day celebrating Jesus. We know that because of his words. Outside of Christ, I am only a sinner, but in Christ, I am saved. Outside of Christ, I am empty. In Christ, I am full. Outside of Christ, I am weak. In Christ, I am strong. And outside of Christ, I cannot. In Christ, I am more than able. Outside of Christ, I am defeated. In Christ, I am already victorious. How meaningful are the words in Christ? So, believers, don't be defeated. The victory is won. This is the good news. Christ has died and has been resurrected my faith lives in you, and he's coming back for you. So be found celebrating. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the victory that is ours, your victory found in Christ. And Lord, we confess that so often we walk around defeated, we walk around frustrated and angry, and praying that you will make things better our way when you've already dealt with it. So, Father, we want to change our prayer. One of thanksgiving. We want, to, we want to ask for what you would have. And Lord, only by your doing, we ask that we enter into the reality that is ours of celebrating and living. Thank you for the good news. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.